Hello, and welcome to episode 153 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, joined this week by Jason Rabinowitz, as always. And joining us special this week is John Walton, aerospace journalist, back with us to discuss what has happened in Ukraine, what is happening around Ukraine, and all of the airspace changes, and how the Russian invasion of Ukraine has affected the aviation industry around the world. Jason, always good to be with you. And John, thank you so much for joining us once again. My pleasure. Hey, John. Oh, man, Ian, where, where do we begin? Let's well, take I, think we begin I, I think we begin with an apology to our listeners for how poorly last week's episode aged. It was barely off to the editors before the first five minutes and our discussion of what was happening in Ukraine was completely mooted by the invasion of Ukraine. Our listeners expect that though. So we had them on their yeah. phones. Yeah. Regular listeners will know that large world events generally occur just after we finish recording. So today is the 2nd of March, Wednesday. If you're listening to this podcast, hopefully you're listening to it earlier this week. We're not going to wait until Friday morning. As soon as we get it back from the editors, whatever time that is, uh, it's going out. So hopefully you're listening to this before Friday and things will be a bit fresh. Last Wednesday, we recorded the episode and sent it off. And then the Russian military invaded Ukraine. Before that, or kind of concurrently, the first inklings of something happening, the airports in eastern Ukraine began to to notam closed. The first was Kharkiv in far eastern Ukraine. That was the uh, which is Ukraine's second largest city, and that was the first airport to close. And then things kind of happened very quickly after that, where we went from a single airport closed to all of Ukrainian airspace being closed. It happened very quickly to the point where a lot of airports in Ukraine they basically went from mostly normal commercial operations to completely shut down due to an act of war in a matter of hours. Right. So things happened very quickly. Right. Exactly. So the the Ukrainian notum that went up closing all of Ukraine airspace, that became active on the 24th of February at 1.56 UTC. So about four in the morning in Ukraine. And that closed all of the airspace sections in Ukraine, quote, due to potential hazard for civil aviation, which I think certainly an active war zone, certainly not an understatement. And then Russia closed its airspace near the Ukrainian border. So what happened was Ukraine closed their airspace. And then there are two FIR, so flight information regions, which are the the divisional airspace boundaries that are controlled by different area control centers. And so there are two within Russia that were closed. And the interesting thing that happened, and I'm using interesting in, I'm not exactly sure what sense here, but Russia closed portions of Ukrainian airspace as well basically a warning to civil aviation to avoid this area. Because until the actual invasion, Russian airliners were using the Russian airspace right along the border of Ukraine, flying up from places like Turkey and other destinations in the Mediterranean, following the Russia-Ukraine border up towards places like Moscow and St. Petersburg on their way. So Russia has closed its airspace along the Ukrainian border, and especially in the Rostov FIR, which pushes all of the traffic, all civil aviation traffic, east into Kazakhstan, so that far east. And then it flies, uh, basically makes a big turn to fly west towards the Black Sea and to Turkey. 
The first airspace closure outside of Ukraine or Russia was a Moldovan NOTAM, which closed all of Moldovan airspace because they are a much smaller neighbor to the southwest of Ukraine. And they closed all of their airspace to everyone initially. And then it became, if you have written permission from the Ministry of Defense or the uh, Civil Aviation Authority, you can operate some flights. So they, they started moving moving things out. I suppose that we should stop for a moment and discuss who who left aircraft in Ukraine. There are still some civil aircraft, non-Ukrainian airlines that, that are still parked in Ukraine. I believe Wizz Air has a total of four aircraft grounded in Ukraine spread across two different airports, so three at one, one at the other. These are Airbus A320s. There has been some discussion on Twitter of why didn't they get these aircraft out before the, the invasion? They knew it was going to happen. Well, a lot of these airlines were operating normal commercial flights right up until Russia invaded and the airspace was, was shut down. There was very... We all knew it was coming, but it was very sudden. And a lot of airlines tried to operate to the very last minute. I haven't heard if Wizz Air was able to get its crews out of Ukraine. I know they had stressed that they were trying to get their crew and family out. But the aircraft, they are in the middle of a very active war zone at the moment. So they will not be going anywhere for the moment. There's also quite a number of Ukrainian registered aircraft on the ground as well. But those probably won't be going anywhere for quite a while. Yeah. And then the following day, the, the 25th, the first airspace closure to Russian flights happened. The UK was the first to ban Russian airlines. Well, at first, they only banned Russian airlines, basically. It was not applicable to, to private aircraft at first. That has since changed, and now it applies to, to private private aircraft associated with any Russian person is one of the pieces of languages that I find very interesting in so all of this. Essentially don't don't fly your German registered oligarch jet to the UK. Exactly. Or over the UK. Or yeah. anywhere near the UK. And so that happened on the twenty fifth. As a response, Russia prohibited UK flights as well. That's had some outsized impacts on BA and Virgin Atlantic's flights to to Indian destinations. Those have added about 900 to 1,000 kilometers and an hour of flying time. Some airlines have been impacted even more, but but we'll kind of get to that as we work our way through where the airspace bans have occurred. So the UK was first, and then Ukraine and Russia's neighbors issued similar bans that the UK had, had issued. So the, the Czech Republic, Bulgaria, Poland, Romania, Estonia, Slovenia, Lithuania, and Latvia were kind of the next group. Not in that order. I seem to recall that Poland joined the UK fairly swiftly, followed by the Czechs, and then everything else kind of sort of fell in line, I assume, as the negotiation for the EU flight bans came into effect. Yeah, so the Baltic Three, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, kind of went not long after Poland and Czechia. And Slovenia, we shouldn't leave them out. And so that pushed all of the flights by Russian airlines over the Baltic Three, basically, into Finland. And then eventually, the bans expanded. Germany, Italy, Iceland, Austria, Netherlands, uh, Malta, Denmark. And then we get to the really interesting one, which was Canada. And this kind of- It changed the game a little bit. Yeah. The Canadian ban 
change the game. So I, I guess we can pause here and discuss the difference between banning overflights in airspace versus banning overflights entirely because there there's a, a big difference in, and this is something that we've been working a lot on this week. There's a big difference between banning someone over your national airspace and saying you can't fly in airspace controlled by a certain country. So nearly all of the world's airspace, save for two small sections, one is actually up near Svalbard in between Russia's Arctic flight information region and the Svalbard containing area. That's no FIR-1. And then the area of airspace west of the Galapagos Islands is no FIR. No one is responsible for that airspace. So when you're flying in that airspace, you're, you have no, there are no air traffic controllers responsible for your being there. Everywhere else in the world, there are air traffic controllers that are responsible commercial aviation. There are air traffic controllers that are responsible for managing the commercial aviation through that airspace. That is different than national airspace, which is airspace that belongs to a country and a country alone. And that airspace is anywhere over land and inland seas plus 12 nautical miles from the baseline, which isn't necessarily the coast, like where you would go from on the beach to in the water. There's a specific point, and we don't, for the purposes of this podcast, we don't really have to discuss what that is everywhere around the world, but roughly 12 nautical miles from the coast out. And that is national airspace. Those are the pieces of airspace that, for the, this conversation, that Russian aircraft are banned from. Yeah. And there's a particularly interesting piece of air, I guess, that Russian airlines have just barely been able to hold on to. Ian, I know you've been taking a look at this, but it's the gap between Finland and Estonia. It is how many miles wide? Is it like 15? So the full channel that's part of the Baltic Sea that runs between Finland and Estonia is just wide enough to have a piece of international airspace in the middle of it that allows Russian aircraft to continue operating from Russia proper to the Kaliningrad exclave. So they fly up from Kaliningrad into international airspace, and then they follow the international airspace in the middle of the Baltic Sea all the way up. And then the channel, it's basically like flying into a funnel. It starts wide and then gets very, 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 very narrow. And so there's one route in and out to allow flights to continue between Russia and Kaliningrad. They can't fly anywhere east of Kaliningrad, basically, because the the ability to find international airspace dries up pretty quickly when you get to about where Sweden and Denmark meet. Yeah, pretty much the only other country that Russian airlines are able to operate in in Europe right now, I guess, is Belarus, who is very clearly on the, the side of Russia during this invasion. That's not really going to get them very far, provide access to any other country that they need to operate to. So that's really it for Russian airlines as far as Europe right now. Right. They're extremely limited in Europe. The routes that they can operate to destinations west of Russia are extremely limited as well. And those have added a considerable amount of flying time and some very interesting route. And we've gotten a lot of questions because of the international airspace issue, but they're basically flying north to reach international airspace and then round the Nordic countries and then fly down along 
in between Iceland and Greenland, down along the, the Canadian and US coast to reach destinations like Cancun and other areas, the island off of Venezuela, whose whose name escapes me, but they, they serve destinations there in, in, the, in the Caribbean. So all of these airspace changes as far as Europe, and as of, by the time you're listening to this, it's, it's probably gone into effect. As of 2 a.m. UTC time on the 3rd of March, the US will prohibit Russian flights as well. The interesting thing that the US did in their notum was they spelled out what would happen if Russian aircraft flew into US airspace. Up until now, that hasn't been stated. But the US said, any aircraft that are not abiding by these special instructions may be intercepted and their pilots and other crew members detained and interviewed by law enforcement or security personnel as appropriate. All previously obtained FAA authorizations for aircraft and operations subject to this notum are revoked. Yeah, I guess it's good to put actual potential teeth into a notum like this. And the US notum actually applies pretty broadly. And I'll quote here, regardless, or let me back up, all aircraft registered in the Russian Federation, all Russian state aircraft, regardless of the state of the aircraft registry, which is important because most Russian operated or owned aircraft are not actually registered in Russia. And all aircraft, regardless of the state of registry, owned, chartered, leased, operated, or controlled by, for, or for the benefit of a person who is a citizen of the Russian Federation are prohibited from operating to, from, within, or throughout U.S. territorial airspace, except for aircraft engaged in humanitarian or search and rescue operations. And I think we'll get back to the humanitarian bit for that uh, in a little bit if we want to. Yeah, so we'll, we'll certainly discuss that. <laughs> Yikes. The U.S. notum, which goes into force in a few hours after this, after we record and will be enforced by the time the podcast comes out, that spells out a bit more detail than, than all of the other ones. Let's go back to the registration issue for a minute because I think that's a very interesting thing and certainly something that we're going to have to, to be discussing over the coming weeks. Most commercial aircraft that operate in Russia are not read on the Russian registry. A lot of them are registered in either Bermuda or Anguilla. Barbados. And don't forget about Ireland. Or Barbados, and quite a few are, are, are registered in Ireland. So before this week, my answer was always for tax purposes, because that's part of it. There are extensive duties on aircraft that are not produced in Russia that are then put on the Russian registry, the RA registry for. for it goes Russian a step further than that, doesn't it? It sure does. Many a step, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we'll put a link to this in the show notes because as always, Steve Giordano of Nomadic Aviation had a really interesting Twitter thread. And we're going to, if we can track him down, he's of course flying around the world moving aircraft. I think he's going to be a little bit busy soon. Yeah. Or busier. Yeah. Much, much busier. So part of it is an international agreement called 86BIS. And that is a, a section of ICAO agreements that deal with putting aircraft on a certain national registry and being able to manage their airworthiness. What the agreements are for lessers of those aircraft to airlines in Russia saying, we're going to keep these on these registries because basically 
we need to make sure that the aircraft are airworthy so that when we take them back after the lease, we can give them to someone else. And Steve's explanation is a bit more fulfilling. And I don't know whether wisely or unwisely downloaded all of the regulations and I'm reading through them. So so perhaps there will be a blog post on the Flight Raider 24 blog later in the week explaining a little bit more of this. But the short answer is it's not just taxes. It's also being able to get those aircraft back when the leases are up and put them with another operation after they've been operated by a Russian carrier. And to do, of course, as well with insurance. Exactly. There's also, if I understand it correctly, there is a, I can be sure that I'll get paid if you're on the Barbados or Bermuda registry if I'm an airport to which you're flying, because I can probably take some sort of legal action, which is much more complicated with a much lower level of success on the Russian registry. Right, right. Exactly. Money money is basically the answer to, it, to all it, of these questions. We'll go around in this case. Yeah. yeah, that bit of knowledge comes into play now as sanctions against Russian airlines, Russian banks, and all of those things come into force. One of the issues becomes how do lessers get their aircraft back? So, the initial sweeping set of notems from the first set of countries that said you can't fly over our airspace didn't say anything about that. Now, a lot of the notems have listed that. One way lease return flights will be permitted with proper previous authorization. So basically, you call up the Civil Aviation Authority and you say, I'm a lesser, I'm getting my planes back from Russia. Can we fly through? And those will be allowed because all of these aircraft are now unserviceable in Russia because of decisions by Boeing, by Airbus, by lessors, by maintenance companies like Lufthansa Technik, which services a lot of these aircraft, including the Superjet fleet. By by engine makers as well. Yeah, engine makers for sure. And so all of these aircraft become unserviceable. Now they need to be retrieved. And that's going to be a very interesting process over the next month or so. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see just how long Russian airlines are are able to support their Boeing and Airbus fleets and keep them operating since basically they've been cut off from every source of support, be it from the manufacturers, the maintenance facilities, even things like just paying for regular things like fuel and catering at foreign airports is, is going to be difficult. But at some point, these Aeroflot and, and Rosaya and the other airlines, they're not going to be able to operate these aircraft without Western help. I don't know how long they can keep them going, but John, what's, what's your take on this? Well, in terms of the physicality, there's a certain generation of aircraft that have been kept going in Iran for quite some time, right? So you're thinking this is the late 1990s, early 2000s generation. I would imagine with the increasing digitalization of, let's say, an A350, that that gets more and more complicated. And just fundamentally, if you can't get the, the, the spares in, once you've used up all your spares, you're done. The other thing is, your lessor is probably going to object to its aircraft being operated against the, the word probably isn't wishes, but without manufacturer support for engines, for the airframe, for any number of the systems, right? And don't forget that the avionics will come from one company that is that is almost certainly in the West and almost certainly under sanctions. And none of these companies 
right now can deal with Aeroflot or Rasia or UTL or whoever it is. Yeah, the Iranian question is less applicable here because so much of the commercial aviation fleet in Russia is leased. Right. A vast majority of these aircraft are leased. Very few of Aeroflot owns very few aircraft. Very, very few aircraft. Which to point out, it is not abnormal. That's a totally normal thing for a major airline to be leasing a majority of its aircraft. Yeah, oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing out of the ordinary about this. But the combination of the fact that a majority of their fleet is leased, nearly all of their long haul fleet is leased, and a vast majority of their short haul fleet, plus there are now sanctions on all of the other. I mean, most of the engines are probably operated on a power by the hour basis. And so you quickly run out of, I guess, the ability to operate those engines at a certain point because the engine manufacturers can't support those engines anymore. So the interesting thing will be what happens getting these aircraft out of Russia, bringing them back to places where the the lessors can, can manage them, and then finding out what to do with these aircraft once they are out. Right, precisely. I should, it'll be very interesting to see whether or not wh- which comes first as top airfoot flying, the inability to organise its airline or the inability to actually fly its planes, because so much of the technology stack behind an airline, whether that's reservations, passenger services, flight operations, electronic flight bags, literally everything that you need, crew scheduling, and um, everything you need to run an airline is now software, right? That software is largely from from two companies, Sabre, which is American, and Amadeus, which is German. Aeroflot, for example, uses Sabre's reservations and distribution, the GDS, passenger services, uh, data analytics, flight operations, and more. If you can't get your flight operations stuff planned and created... You're doing all of this manually, right? You're boarding an entire aircraft manually if you don't have a passenger services suite available. You can't take tickets if your reservation system isn't working, if your GDS doesn't work. There is a Russian version, Sirena, but very few airlines that aren't Russian regional and low-cost carriers use it. Uh, I suspect that's for a reason. So, yeah, I will be interested to see what stops Aeroflot. Is it the technology or is it the aircraft? Yeah. And John Ostrauer had an interesting tweet earlier today, or maybe it was yesterday, that basically the clock on Russian aviation has been set back to 1991. But so much of modern aviation has obviously been integrated into everything that an airline does at this point. It's not just, can they fly the airplane? It's all of this technological systems where if they're shut off from it, it's not like 1991 anymore. They will not be able to operate or functionally operate an airline at any any sort of scale for a long time until they figure out how to uh, basically a plan B or basically B to Z at this point because they're going to need to do so much that they haven't had to do for decades that it's just going to be a a massive lift that they're probably not capable of doing at scale. Nobody would be. And the other problem, of course, is that so much of this stuff runs as software as a service. And if Microsoft Azure and Amazon Web Services can't service you, that just stops working. The other problem is that, as, as as any British Airways knows, the moment that one of your bits of tech stack falls over, your entire airline falls over. So much of even the best run, most simple airline, right? Your low cost carrier that, that has one type of plane, even that sort of airline 
build has so much craft in it from having to interface legacy system X with legacy system Y, and they changed then their passenger services system that didn't change anything else. So that's hooked into something else. There's so much of this which is very much I've likened it to a Jenga tower, and what Airflot's looking at is if three of the lowest levels of its Jenga tower were all pulled away, not just one piece, but the whole three rows. Yeah, and like you said, we've seen time and time again recently that any one piece of an airline operation that just suddenly stops working, whether it be the load balancing or baggage, physical baggage handling or, or fuel calculations or the check-in system or the reservation system, any of those one pieces, modern airlines just come to a halt, the entire thing. And that seems very likely with all the Russian airlines or most of the Russian airlines to be happening quite soon. So I want to shift gears a little bit and kind of cap things off with a discussion of the changes to commercial aviation outside of Russia. I guess there are two big pieces. One is the the European aviation piece where airlines are either still operate, certain airlines are still operating to and, and from Russian destinations, Air Serbia being I think one of the only ones, and then also the the discussion of Turkish airlines, and then we've got the effects on the Pacific side, where U.S. carriers are now avoiding Russian airspace. Less of an impact there, but certainly still impactful. If you're a European airline and you want to serve particularly East Asia, so so any point sort of north and east of Hong Kong, you are almost certainly flying over Russia to get there. So whether that's China, whether that's Korea, whether that's Japan. You might remember, some of your listeners might remember, what people used to do during the Cold War, which is European airlines used to fly to Anchorage in Alaska, land, refuel their 707s, and continue on down between the Russia and Alaska, and then uh, stop off in Japan sometimes, and then often continue on. Now, that may well be what some airlines are now doing again. Because you can make it, for example, from London. If, if you start playing around with the Great Circle Mapper website, for example, you route yourself from London to Barrow in Alaska. I mean, you don't necessarily have to stop, right? Because modern aircraft have a substantial amount more range than we were used to. If you route yourself to Barrow, which is BRW, and then you have to route yourself over ADK, which is ADAC, which is one of the Aleutian Islands, and then you can see your way down into Tokyo, so put an NRT, right? And that way you can essentially skirt Russian territorial airspace. Question mark about flying over the what you were saying earlier, Ian, which is that no FIR section of the North Pole. But you can do that. It will probably take you something like 14, 14 and a half hours. Um, so something like the distance between Dubai and Melbourne or Dubai and Sydney, right? Which is something that an A380 can do all the time. Right. Now your next question to yourself as a as a planner might be, well, what about diversion airports and ETOPS, which is the extended range twin engine operations? Now the answer to that is actually modern aircraft can fly five, six hours on one engine, or at least they're certified to do so. And so with all of the airports up in northern Canada, Thule Air Base in Greenland, uh, all of the airports in Alaska, that's not a problem. It just takes time. And so airlines like Finnair, which want to serve Japan, right? Finnair just announced late today, the 2nd of March, that they are going to be resuming their Helsinki to Tokyo Narita flight four times a week. But it's going to take some 30 hours, or at least they've blocked it at some 13 hours, right? 
and that just gets that gets pretty long. And what that does mean for them as well is that the the whole thing where they can turn all of their aircraft around a full rotation to Asia and back within a twenty four hour period, which makes them most efficient, is of course lost. But they they can still uh, they can still fly the planes. Yeah, it, it kind of feels like Finnair, obviously, is really feeling the pinch here, but it, it feels like a throwback to the Norwegian days where they had ambitions to fly to a lot more destinations in Asia, but they because they couldn't get the Russian overflight permits, they were never really able to go beyond Bangkok and maybe Singapore. But as we saw with that, Finnair is able to keep flying to Bangkok, Delhi, Singapore. They're able to take the very long way around to get to Tokyo, but the rest of their routes to Asia, unfortunately, are uh, not possible at the moment. Yeah. So we've we've got one example of a change that, that has already happened. Lufthansa's flight from Frankfurt to Tokyo was operating the day of the invasion and was turned around inside Russian airspace and brought back to, to Germany because they didn't want to basically didn't want to, to be stuck there like a couple of KLM flights. The issues were once the sanctions went into place, they couldn't send if the if the plane broke down over Russia and they had to land, they couldn't send spare parts. So they said, well, let's prevent that and and turn them around. On the first of March yesterday, Lufthansa re-upped its its Frankfurt Tokyo route. So instead of flying Germany, Poland, Lithuania, because they were already avoiding Belarus, through Russia and then China, South Korea into Japan, they now fly Germany, Austria, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey, Georgia, Armenia, Kazakhstan, then China, South Korea, and Japan. So a much longer route, both in terms of distance and in time. Yesterday's flight took 12 hours and 51 minutes from Frankfurt. Previously, it had been about 10 and a half hours. Yeah. So quite a bit longer, both in terms of time, quite a bit longer in terms of distance, and quite a bit more costly in terms of fuel. Yeah. And speaking of turning around mid-flight, there's a couple, I think to close out, we should talk about a couple of Aeroflot flights that were impacted at the very Indeed. moment that Indeed. the Canadian airspace was closed off to Russian airlines. We had a, a couple of flights launching at the same time, Aeroflot from Miami to Moscow. And we also had a flight going Moscow to New York JFK. And these two flights played out very differently. The flight in route to New York JFK was actually turned around mid-flight. So I think they were maybe five or six hours into their flight. Um, they were notified of the closure of Canadian airspace, and they decided to turn around. Sucks for anyone on board. That's a long flight to nowhere. But then we have Aeroflot 111, which was the, the last flight out of the U.S. back towards Russian airspace, who was well aware of the closure of the Canadian airspace, but they didn't really seem to care. Or reportedly, they had declared themselves as a humanitarian flight to fit into one of the exemptions simply to get back to base, which is an interesting tactic. The Canadian government has said that should not have happened, that that flight should not have been allowed through, and, and NAV Canada is going to look into it. But you can hear in, in the air traffic control recordings that the Aeroflot crew was very aware of the situation, that they were not in that, allowed in that airspace, and it just did it anyway. Yeah, I've heard I've heard some some a variety of edits of the air traffic control recordings, which depending on how much of a benefit of that you want to give the crews, would be a matter of, of are you familiar with Notam Romeo? Well if you are familiar with Notam Romeo, that would be problematic. 
And but what was very interesting was that first flight from Miami SU-111, which was ironically enough, I've been on that actual A350. That was the one that my last aviation event before COVID hit, which was when Airbus launched it at, at Toulouse. But that one went up, and then 157 from Punta Cana went up as well. And that one did actually skirt around the Canadian territorial airspace. As we said earlier on in the episode, it was permitted to transit the oceanic airspace because oceanic airspace cannot be interdicted, but it was not allowed to overfly the Moncton flight information region, which is over, over New Brunswick, right. which SU-111 did. Yeah, 111 did. They also overflew Greenland. So Greenland airspace is very interesting because it's under the authority of Denmark, but control for the flights that operate over that portion of Greenland is delegated to Canada and Iceland. The Danish Air Traffic Management Air Navigation Service Provider, they're also looking into to what happened to see if they need to take any action on their end as far as procedures and things like that for, for that particular flight. So the 111 skirted the band by playing dumb. I can also imagine this, that whatever happens in terms of this this report and Transport Canada said, you know, we are aware that Aeroflight 111 violated the prohibition put in place early today on Russian flights using Canadian aerospace would also review the conduct of Aeroflot and the independent air navigation service provider NAVCAN, that's NAVCanada, leading up to the violation. And this is one of the other problems is that by and large, certainly in Canada and in the UK, which operates uh, on the other side of the, the Oceanic FIRs Atlantic, these are no longer government agencies doing this. They are sort of arm's length bodies, right? So it's a non, not-for-profit company that's basically controlled by the government, which isn't the government, which will affect the the, the closeness of, of that air navigation service provider with, for example, fighter jets that would want to go up and escort it, right? And it adds in an extra level of, oh, what do we do now that this has happened? And if it's going to be the last plane, and this is the last restrictions have just come in, there is a certain... Look, just let it go. We don't want to have to deal with diverting a triple seven full of civilians to Ganda sort of question. That wouldn't surprise me if that were have that had been quietly the case. Yeah, honestly, I think that was most likely the correct call. If you deny that aircraft on its last flight back to Russia entrance in the airspace, it's just going to create further problems. Let them go, just make sure they don't come back. And maybe that's why the FAA, FAA is known in the US, is, is quite specific about what actions will or could be taken if such an action was repeated. Since, as you mentioned, John, the, uh, the US FAA is a government-controlled entity that would probably have more direct control over who does or does not enter the airspace as opposed to NAV Canada, which is kind of, well, they're aware of the NOTAM, that's all we can do. <laughs> we politely informed them of the situation. And they did. As John said, they asked, you can listen to the recordings, they, they asked Aeroflot 111, are you aware of NOTAM Romeo? And they said, yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Moving okay. on. And, and if the Canadian government decides to intercept you, that's their business. So that's the situation as of today. The EU has has banned 
Russian flights, the Canada and the US. So we're, we're kind of out of countries that are going to ban Russian flights. Russia has reciprocated most of the bans. I'm not sure if the NOTAM banning US flights is up yet, but I would assume it would be up later today. We've got a blog post that runs through all of these that has the actual text of the NOTAMs. So if you're as nerdy and geeky about these things as we are, please feel free to dig through them and we can do that. And we'll keep that post up to date along with a graphical representation of airspace that's unavailable to Russian Airlines. We're going to have a second conversation either later this week or early next week, a special episode of the podcast. We're going to talk with John Ostrauer as well. John Walton, who's here now, may be back with us depending on timing. And we're going to look into less the effects on commercial aviation as far as flights and things go, but more dig in deeper to the functioning of the aerospace industry writ large. How do these sanctions affect the manufacturing of aircraft? How do they affect the manufacturing and design of, of engines, aircraft parts, raw materials, things like that? And where does the aviation industry fit in to all of this. So that'll be part of a, a second episode that we'll do later in the week or, or early next week, depending on timing. So keep an eye out for that. Until then, I want to thank John Walton for, for joining us once again and giving us his knowledge of the situation and sharing his time with us as well. So John, thank you so much as always for joining us. You're very welcome indeed. Indeed.